0: It's so good to see you here in person worshiping with us. We welcome those who are worshiping with us from home today as we enter into 2021, the second week of 2021. What a week it has been, a a traumatic week as we've seen the images that grieve all of us that are gathered together, the riding of the Capitol, and we gather together this first Sunday after that asking, Lord help us, help us to understand, help us as we gather as believers, understanding that these events that are so traumatic, that grieve all of us that are here, come on the heels of a year like none other, a year that uh, for so many has been filled with suspicion, certainly filled with true sickness and turmoil and division that is all around us, heartache that is before us. My calling as your pastor is not to stand before you as a cultural or political commentator. Heaven knows there are many other people do that. That's not what I do. That is not what I am called to do. My calling as your pastor is to stand before you Sunday after Sunday, regardless of what has happened, what is happening, and to open God's word and to speak a truth that is beyond my opinions, beyond my observations. But in the midst of us gathering the Sunday, like the after the, the week that we've experienced, where there's so much division, so much turmoil, and it seeps into the body of Christ. It is a helpful reminder, at least for me, and I pray that it's a helpful for reminder for you, that as we gather as a church, we gather as, as a reminder that our primary identification is not political parties. Our, our primary identification is not as we gather on Sunday as first, first and foremost Republicans, or first and foremost Democrats, or first and foremost independents, or first and foremost as, as Americans. We we gather on Sunday, reminded that our first and foremost allegiance is followers of the Most High King. Our first and foremost allegiance is Christians. Earthly politics, it it does matter. It it matters tremendously. Political parties, they matter. Our democracy matters. Of course, we, we know this, but our political parties are not eternal. You know this. Our democracy is not eternal. As Christians, we we gather together, especially on a Sunday like this, as as a reminder that we're citizens of a kingdom that is secure even when our earthly kingdoms are shaken. We're citizens of of this earthly kingdom, of the United States of America, and we have a responsibility as as citizens of this kingdom to promote unity, to seek peace, to search for truth, to show love, to pray for our country, to pray for our leaders as we move forward in the days ahead. But what is our primary responsibility as as we stand here this morning, It is to say, speak to our hearts, Lord. So so what will I do as your pastor the Sunday after the events of this last week? I will do what I will always do as your pastor, which is this. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to a word that speaks to us? Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. We begin a a sermon series in the book of Exodus today that is going to take us three years to complete. Now, don't don't get nervous about this. We're not going to be in the book of Exodus consecutively for three years. Each spring, this spring, the spring of 2021, we will move from the Israelites groaning under Egyptian captivity to the glory of their exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. And then we will pause that series… We'll come back to the book of Exodus in the spring of 2022, and we will go to Mount Sinai, and we will walk through the Ten Commandments. We'll walk through that for months in the spring of 2022, and all of this, obviously, is Lord willing in the spring of 2023, Lord willing, we come back to the section of Exodus that is the final section, which is the law, but it is first and foremost, the tabernacle. And so, for these three years, each spring, we will be walking through the book of Exodus. Now, as we walk with Moses, in these coming months, we will walk with Moses from the palace to exile, back to the palace as he goes to Pharaoh, a Pharaoh whose heart is hardened And we will see the the, the way that God brings about the plagues to, to soften the heart of Pharaoh. But as we go again and again, we see the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Moses coming before him saying, let my people go. We will walk through the captivity of the Israelites as they're groaning under that that weight of Pharaoh and Egypt's regime, and we will walk with them through the parting of the Red Sea. All the while, church, as Christians reading the book of Exodus, we're always dusting for the fingerprints of Christ in the landscape of the story of Exodus, understanding that the book of Exodus, as Christians, points us to a greater Moses, who has brought about a greater exodus— Not from Egyptian captivity, but from the captivity of sin and Satan himself that brings us through the parting of the Red Sea, which is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We see in the grand story of the Israelites, we see our story from captivity to freedom. Our story as God's people being led by the Holy Spirit into the land that he has called us as believers to live in. Now, we start this journey this morning in what place? Well, we start it in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1. It starts with the bang of a litany of names. Here we start, not a genealogy, but a reminder of where we have been. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Do you remember those names? Verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land, the land of Egypt, was filled with them. Forty years, we know the iconic score of John Williams. We know the opening, uh, scrolling of the Star Wars theme that brings us in. George Lucas in the 70s, he had this way that was sort of innovated for the time. To, before you get into a, a spaceship challenging and, and, and flying after another spaceship, before you're right in the middle of that story, you have the score that comes up. You have the rolling yellow letters that tell you everything that came before it. give you the context of what is before you in this new story. You're familiar with that a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and it seems so innovative, right? What's as old as Moses is the author of Exodus himself here. This is what he's giving us. He's given us a a scrolling backstory to start Exodus chapter 1. It is connected to Genesis. You know this. Exodus is a sequel to the book of Genesis. We see this in the original language of the Old Testament here in the book of Exodus Genesis 46:8 are the same six Hebrew words of Exodus chapter 1 that start the story it's a it is a way that through the power of the Holy Spirit that the the uh, Moses is connecting Genesis to Exodus in the original language of the Old Testament, the, the first letter that starts Exodus 1, it's not in our translations here, at least not in the English Standard Version, but it's actually a Hebrew letter that can be translated, and. So, so really, the, the, first, the, the first word of Exodus is, and. Here we go. This is all that happened. It's a conjunction that connects us to Genesis 50. So it is a continuous story that is reminding us of God's story through the Israelites. Now, it's always helpful to be reminded of how we got to this place. Because that's what this rolling scroll of of Exodus chapter 1 is doing. It is saying the Israelites are in captivity, but how did they get there? You, You remember how they got there. Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is, uh, is captured by his brothers, put into a pit. They sell him into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's palace. There in Egypt, he has this, this high position. Potiphar's wife has this uh, allure toward him. He resists. Potiphar catches them. Joseph goes to prison. The refrain of of the story of Joseph is, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph in the pit. The Lord was with Joseph in the palace. The Lord was with Joseph when he goes to prison. When he's in prison, he's there and he has, because the Lord's with him, he's got this ability to interpret dreams. Pharaoh has a dream none of all of the Egyptians. All of his palace could interpret his dream. His dream is, is about, as Joseph is able to interpret it, it's about the famine that is coming to all of that ancient Near Eastern world. Pharaoh says, well, I need someone who will be my secretary of agriculture. So Joseph, I mean, it's just like you've heard that phrase, you fall upward, you fall upward, you fall upward, you know, those kinds of people. Well, Joseph falls upward. With every bad thing that happens to Joseph, it is God's way in this long and windy road to lead him to the very place he is supposed to be. And so he has this wonderful position that in the Egyptian empire, he has this huge responsibility. And so the Pharaoh of the day says, I like this guy. There's a reconciliation between Joseph and all of his brothers that we read about in the end of the book of Genesis. So much so the Pharaoh of Joseph's day says, hey, live here. Bring your whole family. I'll give you the region of Goshen here in Egypt. And so Genesis 50 ends and they all live happily ever after, right? Well, wrong. Because the promises of a previous administration don't carry over to the next administration here. We read in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. And guess what? This new king did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel, too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy, heavy burdens. They built for Pharaohs store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So there's a lot of questions that Exodus chapter 1 sort of begs us to answer. Uh, There are questions like, well, how long was it between Joseph dying and this new pharaoh coming to power? Who is this new pharaoh? And all of those questions, they literally are many, many dissertations written to answer these questions. So we could chase these uh, sort, of, sort of rabbits and, and try to find the scholarly consensus. But guess what? There just isn't. That We, we don't know who the pharaoh was. We don't know exactly how long. There's some that place this in the 15th century B.C. There's some that place this in the 13th century B.C. There's some that say, oh, of course, this is Amos I. There's some that say this is Ramses. We don't know. We don't know. You know why we do not know? Because God doesn't tell us. Now, this is interesting. Pharaoh was the most important person in Egypt. He was the most important person in all the Egyptian uh, nation, but more than that, all of the ancient Near Eastern world. And he goes nameless. Uh, There's nothing about this that's accidental here. That out of all the people that should be named, this Pharaoh is nameless throughout all the book of Exodus. It's not an accident. God wants to show even by this Pharaoh not being named, he wants us to see and to feel that his name doesn't matter compared to the one who is named. One of the high points of the book of Exodus is Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And the question that Moses asks is, hey, I've got to go back. To the Israelites, and they're gonna ask, What is the name of the person that sent me to say to Pharaoh, Let my people go? And he says in there, I am who I am. It is connected to Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 3, God is named, and Pharaoh is nameless. And it's not accidental, but it's providential. And it is a healthy reminder for all of us that are here that leaders, my friends, they come and go. Dynasties, they rise and they fall but God's reign endures forever. This is what Exodus teaches us. Leaders, they come and go. Dynasties, they rise and they fall, but God's reign endures forever. The Pharaoh that is nameless has got a problem. You know what that problem is? There are too many Israelites. You know why there are too many Israelites? Because God keeps his promises. He told Abraham and Sarah when they were barren, and they did not have children. I'm going to, hey, look up at the stars, Abraham. Hold into your hand the granules of sand. You can't count the granules of sand. You can't number the stars. So will your descendants be. And Sarah laughs. I can't even have a child. But God said, I'm going to bless you. And your descendants are going to be so numerous that you will not be able to count them. And we see the promise coming to fruition right here as they're living in Egypt. And the Pharaoh sees all of these these descendants of Joseph and of Jacob and says, We've got to do something about this, they're a threat. They're a threat to our political power. What if one of our enemies comes in and you've got these people right here that will go up against us so they make them slaves? But that's not enough. They want to silence this threat and they want to silence it forever. And then we pick up the story in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Pewah, When you, verse 16, serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you should kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, hey, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Verse 19, the midwife said of Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt very well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. Now, again, this story has a point that tells us at the very outset of God's economy, God's hierarchy not being our hi- hierarchy. The first heroes of the story of Exodus, the the lead-off hitters to God's lineup that is going to bring about the, the freedom of the Israelites from the bondage of this nameless Pharaoh are two people that are named that should be lost to the annals of human history. We should not know the name of two Hebrew midwives, but we do, Shipra and Pua. They're insignificant in all of our renderings of who is important. It's a reminder that God often uses unlikely people to accomplish His sovereign plan. We think that God can only work in the big ways, in the important ways. We're always looking to see God working in the most visible ways. But I wonder if we come to 4,000 years that the Lord tarries His second coming, And we're still here, we won't be here, but there are people here on the earth. I wonder if he's still going to be working in this way where we're thinking all that is significant around us is seen in these ways with these people. But he says, let me tell you how I'm working. Let me tell you about two Hebrew midwives who we don't even know about here. Verse 17, he, that being Pharaoh, the nameless Pharaoh, is taken to task, by two Hebrew midwives. Why? What was their motivation? Pharaoh says, you need to kill every male child that is born. Now, it's hard for us to understand this. It seems as if they maybe are over. They're, they're given a dictate by Pharaoh that they are to enact to the other Hebrew midwives. I so, mean, how can I have two Hebrew midwives, have an effect over all the Israelite children that are being born. But we see this as emblematic of a larger genocidal strategy that Pharaoh enacts in his kingdom here. And so these two Hebrew midwives say, "Uh uh-uh, we will not do it. What was their motivation? Look again with me, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. What was the motivation of their disobedience to Pharaoh? You know what it was? The fear of God. It, it is easy for us to lose the significance of this. It is easy for us to lose just the courage that these two women had to disobey Pharaoh. You have these inscriptions in Egyptian history around the approximate time of the Exodus, give or take hundreds of years. I know that's that's sort of ironic that I would even say that. But you have the Pharaohs of those days, and it's very clear what people said about them. And what they said about themselves, do you know what Thutmose III, do you know? I know you're up on all your Egyptian pharaohs here, but do you know what was said about him? This is what was said, that he is God by whose dealings one lives, the father of the mother of all men alone by himself without an equal. I mean, that's what pharaohs of, of, of that Egyptian empire would say about themselves. That was what was believed about them, that the pharaoh was deity, the pharaoh was God. And Shipra and Puah said, no, we will bow down to the one true God and not you. What does it mean to fear God? It's one of these phrases that we'll see all throughout the Bible we have these ideas of of movies and fear and Halloween and to be scared. And that's as far away from it as it possibly can be. The the fear of God has nothing to do with with a, a sound that you hear at night in your basement. And you're standing at the precipice of your stairs looking down saying, I'm a little bit nervous about walking down to check out what I heard in the middle of the night that woke me up. That kind of fear is not what we're talking about, but the fear of God. The fear of God is the healthy, holy respect and admiration and awe that you have for who He is. That He deserves our full obedience. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our worship. That the one true God demands our respect. He demands our total devotion. This is what it means to fear God. This is what Shipra and Pua knew that only one person demanded their total obedience, and it wasn't the pretend God. It wasn't the pretend God who's the unnamed Pharaoh, but it is the one true God of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Did you have somebody in your life like that? I, you know, it's interesting. When I think about growing up, uh, I had two younger brothers and which meant, at least in our house with three boys, that there was a lot of roughhousing going on. There was a lot of watching wrestling and enacting that upon our, our, our all of us as, as brothers. There was a lot of fighting that would occur, you know, just, just natural things that boys do. I've got three boys and I always say they, they're sort of like puppy dogs. They, they show love by hitting each other. They show love by wrestling with each other. It's just that energy. And that's what it was with me me growing up. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes my mom would come in and we would get too loud. We would come in and we would get too disorderly. And my mom would say, hey boys, stop it. Hey boys, cut it out. And I know you would never imagine this, but sometimes my mom's words to us would be like white noise to us and we would continue to ignore it. But one person's voice could always silence us fighting, roughhousing with each other. If my grandfather, my mom's dad, six foot four, Frank Shropshire, defensive lineman from Mississippi State, when he would walk in the room, he would say this, boys, stand at attention. He didn't have to say, stop, he didn't have to say, what are you doing? His voice carried a command. We, did, we were not fearful of him, like we were scared of him. But there was a healthy fear of my grandfather because we respected him. We adored him. I still remember the first sermon I ever preached. I was 16 years old in my home church, and I was preaching to an audience of people that loved me, but I still remember my grandfather being at the back pew, and I could still remember as I was preaching to him, I had a lot of of care about what people thought about the sermon, but I tell you, the person whose opinion I valued more than anyone else was what my grandfather was going to say about that sermon. You've got those kinds of people in your life. Maybe it's a dad a grandfather, a teacher, a coach. Someone that you hold in this respect, you hold in this place and you're so grateful for them and their word, it carries the significance. You, you have this respect for them. Shipra and Pua, they show us that while we'll have human examples of this in our life, that's natural, that's healthy, but it only is really a preview of the ultimate respect, the ultimate admiration that we have, not for human figures, but for the eternal God. And Shipporah and Pugh have said, Pharaoh, you can say what you want to say, but our ultimate devotion, our ultimate respect, it goes to what God says. These are the first heroines of the Bible. First, pro-life heroes of the Bible. As, as, as Pharaoh says, kill these male children, they say, no, we will not do that. We, we see the dignity of life. We see the, the health of life that will come forward here, and, and your hand will not move our hand to, to do anything to them that would take away their life here. And we see in their example in Exodus chapter 1, really a living example of Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. And there's a long chorus that is sung throughout the Bible. The Shepherd and Pua, they sing, but it gets picked up. It gets picked up by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in the fiery furnace, and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we, we're not going to bow down to you. We will stand before our God, rather than bow before you. We see it in Daniel when he says, hey, you could throw me into a, a, a lion's den, but I'm going to stand for God before I bow to you. We see it with Stephen in the book of Acts, where he says, you will stone me before I will renounce Christ. I will stand for him before I bow to you. And it is a costly obedience that we see with Shipra and Pua. It's a costly obedience that we see that is a calling for us. It's a costly obedience that we continue to see. You get in your vehicle before you go home. You take a detour, go down Lakeshore, pull into Sanford University, go to Jeroe uh, Hodges Chapel there at Beeson Divinity School. If you live in Birmingham, you should go to this place. You should see it. It's just this, it's just this living and breathing testimony of sacred space. And you look around you and you look above you and you're immersed in the, the story of the Bible. You're immersed in the story of Christian history. It's, it's worth your time to be able to experience. For three years, I sat in the pews at chapel as I was a student at Beeson Divinity School, and I would look around me and I would see the bust of, of four individuals who were the martyrs of the faith. One of them is a guy by the name of Bill Wallace. Do you know that name? He didn't grow up far from here. Grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. Was a Southern Baptist missionary. He was a surgeon in China as a missionary. His tour in China, his missionary career, it intersected through the, the growing communist threat in World War II and beyond. 1950, Christmas, he was imprisoned, falsely accused of being an American spy, asked by those captors to renounce his faith or die. He was well known, he was beloved, and you know his response to that was not to not to renounce his faith, not to falsely admit to something that he wasn't. He wasn't an American spy living over there. So do you know the story? Do you know the way this ended for Bill Wallace? It ended with him dying alone in a cell, being tortured and psychologically imprisoned and and, and tortured in so many ways. And he died and there were a few Christians that knew of his ministry and they, they smuggled his body out of the prison and they buried him in a shallow grave and they put a gravestone there and it says, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. And I don't know your future. I don't know my future. There's a part of me as I stand before you that, that would, would never imagine that anyone would die a martyr's death. And that we live so far beyond this. But I know that it's such an American perspective because I know that there are more martyrs now in, the, uh, in our world than at any time in human history. And so there's so many people that would hear the costly obedience of Shipra and Pua and it is a part of their vernacular. It's a part of their life here. Now, very few of us maybe are going to be called to, to die a martyr's death, but we are going to be called to costly obedience. It might cost us opportunities in the business world because for us to say yes to this is to say no to God's call upon our life. It might cost us, it might cost us the respect. I know it will always cost us our comfort. It will always cost us our comfort. I feel the pull of this more than anything else in my life. I I feel the pull of the default of, God, I want to be comfortable in your name. I want to be comfortable in your name. I'm gonna do everything that I can do as a default to, to live a life that is comfortable. And then I just open the Bible and, and I just see that, that God is not first and foremost concerned with, with the followers of His their comfort, and He's not first and foremost concerned with my comfort or your comfort. Now, yes, we've got to have wisdom. Well, I am so acutely aware of how this passage and even my sermon could be taken out of context to defend and to support a host of things coming like from very directions even over the course of these last weeks here. Everything we disagree with, we don't just say, well, they're against God and so I'm going forth. I would rather obey God than to obey man, yes, we could take this out of context, yes, this gets taken out of context, but as we are here this morning listening to the Word of God, asking it to be applied to our lives here, all of us must answer on a daily basis... And increasingly, I feel, are we willing to choose costly obedience to God? Or will we live under the default of what is comfortable for us? Are we willing to believe the hard truths of God's word when they increasingly will go against the stream of our cultural moment? Are we willing, as followers of Jesus, to say, I I will serve instead of always looking to be served? Are we willing to share our faith? to love our neighbor when we're tempted to be silent? Are we willing, church? Are we willing to be uncomfortable? And I just want to leave you with a truth to hold on to here, that on the other side of your discomfort is always delight in Christ. That what makes you uncomfortable, this side of heaven, is always a pathway to delighting in the richness of Christ. Costly obedience is always worth it because he is worth our total fear, reverence, awe, admiration. God, give me, God, give us the strength, the courage, the will to say yes to him, no matter what it costs. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning asking you to help us see your word in our life. We don't know who the Pharaoh was, but we know Shipper and Pua. We know these names that should be lost to us of two people in significant positions that made a significant stand in the face of the pretend God. Give us courage, God, to not bow down to our own comfort, to not worship the path of least resistance. We live in such a divided, confused land, and it's easy for us to be sidetracked from what you call us to be, to go and to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is tempting for us to, to have the, the, the world just screaming at us that what matters the most is this or that. But may we as your people be found faithful to serve you, love you, worship you, tell of your name, not only here in Birmingham, not only here in Alabama, not only here in United States of America, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. We pray that you would find us faithful, no matter the cost. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.